What's up, everyone, and welcome to the weekly edition of ESG Now, where we cover how the environment, our society, and corporate governance affects and are affected by our economy. I'm your host, Mike DeCebedo, and this week we are going to discuss why everyone hates ESG and also what ESG actually is. Thanks, as always, for joining us. Stay tuned. The ESG investing industry is dangerous, says the Financial Times. One of the hottest trends in the world of investing is the sham, says the New York Times. The savior complex, says the economist. And my favorite, the many reasons why ESG is a loser, a headline in the Wall Street Journal. That is, of course, from their opinion desk. What is interesting is the venom in some of these headlines. Why all the anger? Why the emotion? They critique ESG for its duplicity, including fossil fuel companies and ESG funds, for example. The lack of ratings correlation. We rank a company higher than Sustainalytics, another ESG data service provider, but if it's based on sustainability, why would there be a difference in the ratings? The greenwashing. The ESG company isn't what it says it is. But do the critics have a point? Or have we as an industry just done a very poor job of communicating what ESG is? Today, we're going to explore some of these criticisms in order to understand how ESG got into such a controversial place. In the coming weeks, we will add more details into how we specifically look at companies and whether there is such a thing as a perfect ESG company. We're going to try and answer some of the questions and criticisms that have been lobbied at the ESG industry in the next couple of episodes. But today, We want to first examine the ESG industry as a whole. What are its goals? In what direction does it flow? And what are its tributaries? To do that, I called up my colleague Megan Eastman, who is our global editorial director for ESG and climate research. She's been in the industry for a couple decades now and has seen ESG evolve from a relatively obscure investing philosophy to one that many institutional investors with trillions of assets under management use in making their investment decisions. So I wanted Megan to go through the broad strokes of ESG, like what even is ESG? And then I wanted her to discuss some of what the ESG critics have gotten right and some of what they've gotten wrong. But first, I wanted her to start us off with the most basic question. What is ESG for? ESG is just a clunky abbreviation to describe a bunch of different issues, topics, if you like, that didn't used to get considered in the investment process. So then ESG data is just information. It's information about companies, it's information about people and the environment and information about how those things intersect. And what's it for? I mean, that's up to the user. Like all data can be used in different ways by different people to do different things. And that includes different investment goals. And that means that even though people use the term all the time as a kind of shorthand, ESG investing is not actually a specific thing. I mean, it's like saying financial investing. It's There is no widely agreed definition or goal for it. it. It's information and people use it in different ways. And the way an investor would use it will depend on what they want to achieve because it's not always just the blunt growth of assets. That is the most common pursuit of an investor to maximize risk adjusted returns. 
And if that is your goal, fine, great. In our mind, managing for financial materiality does involve managing ESG issues. We think you should pay attention not to just what the earnings per share will be in the next quarter. Rather, you, a long-term investor, should understand how companies' competitive position might change because of an environmental factor or a social factor or a governance factor. So, for example, take talent management. If you don't treat your workforce well and develop it, it's hard to recruit and retain the best people. It's going to be harder to innovate. You're probably less likely to be productive over time. Uh, or take water efficiency. If you're a semiconductor maker in Taiwan and you're seeing serious droughts, that's a problem. You need to manage it, whether you care about long-term water supplies for the world or not. Take a fossil fuel company. Uh, does it have a business model transition strategy in a world where we know we're going to have to use less fossil fuels? So this is all just sound investment practice. It's about including that information, making sure you're not missing anything, maximizing your financial outcomes. For this, an ESG investor might just look at ESG ratings, which in our ESG ratings use information that, in our view, may have financial relevance and look at how companies are managing their exposures to ESG risks and opportunities. But what if your goal as an investor isn't just asset growth? I mean, it is going to still be there, especially for institutions. They have a fiduciary duty to act in the best interest of their constituents, and that usually is asset growth for them. But say you want to use your investments to also wield influence on the world, push companies that make up our society to operate in a way you personally find more sustainable. If that is the case, then ESG might mean something completely different to you, something much more diverse than traditional investing holds as usually meaningful. For this, you might use a data set for your investment analysis that is outside traditional ESG ratings. So they might get at, you know, what kinds of negative impacts does a company have on the outside world? Never mind whether they have financial implications or not, just what's, it's do, what's it doing that might impact stakeholders? Or um, what's the trajectory of its long-term emissions? Is it headed for net zero? You could argue that that is financially relevant. You could also argue that that's just about getting the world to a place where we're not having the temperature rise above a degree and a half, you know, and anything else is kind of secondary to it. We offer information about companies' business activities, and that could be stuff that people don't like, you know, maybe in some cases that's tobacco or weapons or gambling or coal, but it could also be things that people actually want to pursue and, and put capital into because they think it's doing good. And so that might be pharmaceutical development, it might be clean tech, it might be sustainable agriculture, that kind of thing. So even amongst people who agree on financial materiality as an objective, uh, a good thing to use ESG information for, there's plenty of argument about what's actually material and what's more material than something else. Um, sometimes it's a matter of time frame. Bad corporate governance could be very material tomorrow if a scandal breaks out. Whereas something like high carbon emissions might take longer to hurt a company's bottom line or its valuation. And the issues that we're talking about are all super dynamic. You know, they change, they emerge, they evolve. And the market responses to them, the way markets price them or don't, that's evolving really quickly too. So there are lots of different views about what to emphasize. And sometimes what ESG aspects your strategy emphasizes can cause contradictions. For example, what if you have a water utility? 
that helps our water systems become much more efficient than ever before and saves us from droughts. But it has higher carbon emissions than your average utility and treats its workers like second-rate citizens. If that isn't a water fund that has a focused ESG mandate, does that company betray the fund's ESG tenants because it is polluted? The answer depends on the person. It depends on the person's goals. Companies, as they go about their business, have impacts on the outside world. They give people jobs, they pollute the waterways, they develop vaccines, they make cigarettes, and so on and so on. Some investors are concerned with the whole suite of those impacts, financially, material, or not. This is sometimes referred to as the double materiality approach. But some just want to focus on the ESG impacts that are financially material for the company they are invested in, point stop. Of course, that financial materiality is based on what they view as important. They can both be investors focused on ESG, both the impact-oriented, the double materiality-oriented, and the traditional investor. They are just focused on two different aspects of the acronym. And that can certainly become confusing, I understand, because if both say they are ESG, and one is trying to focus on things just beyond the financials, will it be easy for an investor off the street to tell the difference? Maybe not. So here's where we get into some of those criticisms I mentioned at the beginning of the episode. Confusing terminology, lack of correlation between ESG data providers, and greenwashing. I asked Megan what criticisms, in general, she thought were the most valid. Everybody uses these words and they mean different things, or they use the, the different words and mean the same thing. Uh, there aren't rules or agreed vocabulary and definitions in most places. Um, Now, there's no real excuse for big institutional investors to be confused. They've got the tools and the resources to dig in and and understand methodologies and so on. But, you know, for the person on the street with a retirement account who might have a few bucks in a mutual fund somewhere, faced with multiple funds to choose from that all say they're sustainable in some fashion, that's confusing. That is legit confusing. There is a lot of nuance. There are a lot of different approaches possible. And that's probably not all coming across in ways that the average person is going to readily grasp or, or just have the patience to untangle. So I think that is what a lot of the EU regulations are targeting and what we're seeing from organizations like the CFA Institute and so on, where they're, they're trying to come up with a common vocabulary that then people can really rely on. What else do they get right? Uh, there have been real cases of greenwashing. You know, we're pretty sure about that. It is a problem. You know, when there's overpromising and failure to deliver, it it can cast a shadow over the rest of what everyone else is doing. Uh, and that's one of the reasons I think also it's important not to call greenwashing when it's a difference of opinion as opposed to a, a difference of fact. And then maybe related to that. You know, ESG issues are complicated and there are difficult trade-offs to make. Yeah, and I think with greenwashing, what is difficult is when a priority of a fund or a company that is clearly stated as being green in their mind is at odds with what someone might think is green. There are disagreements there that need to be hashed out. And saying we are a green company because we use carbon offsets, that might be accounted for using a model that needs improvements, but that model is still transparent and clearly stated is not the same as a company saying they are cutting emissions in their operations, but they actually are not. One is unfortunate yet complicated, and the other is greenwashing. And where that line is drawn can be difficult. That is why the EU is making a taxonomy that tries to set out definitions of what can be considered sustainable and what cannot. And even that was really complicated and difficult to hash out. Is nuclear green? 
What about gas? The EU decided yes for gas, but only after a protracted negotiation. So that is what the critics are getting right in Megan's mind. So what are they getting wrong? What do they get wrong? Okay, one of the things that people like to harp on is that there isn't a lot of correlation between ESG ratings from different providers. So there's actually a couple of things to point out there. One is that actually we don't really know how well correlated or not the different ratings are because most of the academic work that's been done on the subject has been using these older data sets. So all the ratings providers, and MSCI must definitely included, we've enhanced or changed or revised our methodologies over the years, many times in, in a lot of cases, to reflect the latest data, the best understanding of how risks or opportunities materialize, the latest research, and so on. But the longest historical data sets, which of course academics love because you can look back much farther and, and pull out trends, the longest historical data sets that are available on this stuff from us and from others are based on older methodologies that are not in use in the marketplace today. So we can say with some confidence that the ratings models we were all using a decade ago are not well correlated. But we don't actually have that great a sense of where they are today. Even if we assume that indeed they're not well correlated, that there's poor correlation from one provider to another, we and many of our institutional clients Think of that actually as a feature rather than a bug. Because I said this earlier, nobody really knows the best way to measure this stuff. We're all still figuring it out. We're all still trying to get better year over year, bit of research over bit of research. Yeah, I mean, think about it this way. As of June 2022, this year, scientists finally could confirm the link between human-induced climate change and some extreme weather events. They can now say that with definitive and accurate claims. I mean, that took a while, even though we all kind of saw that coming. And I think for me, you know, I want to note that professionally, I'm in this profession, and what drew me to it, and what I continue to enjoy about it, is that ESG is attempting to put the attention of our capital towards sustainability in all its forms and in all of its definitions. Regardless of where you fall in these camps of thinking ESG is good or bad or otherwise, I do think it is useful that we are having these conversations about a company's labor policies or a company's carbon emissions or how their board ensures that a company adheres to the policies it purports to have at the highest level. These conversations seem worthwhile and worthy of our collective attention. And that's it for the week. I wanted to thank Megan so much for talking about ESG with an ESG twist. And I wanted to thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate it. If you liked it, don't forget to rate and review us. That really helps push us up on podcast lists so more people can find us. And if you want to hear me or Bentley each week, please subscribe and that'll happen. Thanks again and talk to you next week. The MSCI ESG Research Podcast is provided by MSCI Inc. subsidiary, MSCI ESG Research, LLC, a registered investment advisor, and the Investment Advisors Act of 1940. And this recording and data mentioned herein has not been submitted to, nor received approval from the United States Securities and Exchange Commission or any other regulatory body. The analysis discussed should not be taken as an indication or guarantee of any future performance, analysis, forecast, or prediction. The information contained in this recording is not for reproduction in whole or in part without prior written permission from MSCI ESG Research. None of the discussion or analysis put forth in this recording constitutes an offer to buy or sell or promotional recommendation of any security, financial instrument or product or trading strategy.
Further, none of the information is intended to constitute investment advice or recommendation to make or refrain from making any kind of investment decision and may not be relied on as such. The information provided here is as is, and the user of the information assumes the entire risk of any use it may make or permit to be made of the information. Thank you.